All right, we're reading from Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 10. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me, behold, two baskets of figs set forth before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. The other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. But like the bad figs which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed thus says the Lord, So I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth, as a reproach and as a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I will scatter them. I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence upon them, until they are destroyed from the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that you preserve a remnant even at a point where Israel's at an all-time low. Thank you for saving us. We acknowledge that we... We're saved while yet sinners, and we are grateful for your reaching out to us. Pray for these words. Pray for Tom as he teaches us that you would apply these things to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Have you guys ever suspected that some difficulty you were going through was a judgment from the hand of God but you couldn't figure out which sin he was at work to correct. I've known a whole lot of Christians who have beaten themselves to a pulp over that question. They, they think, God would certainly not let this happen unless he was really ticked off at me. And then they agonize over which sin he's correcting and what it's going to take for them to finally get out from under the whooping. And since... Since every single one of us sins every day of our lives, it's pretty hard to filter out what it is that God's trying to correct if He doesn't come right out and and tell us. I've known some believers who are convinced that they're so wretched that God hates them. They don't even know where to start to put an end to the divine spanking that they seem to experience every day. If any of that 
sounds even remotely like your experience. I hope you'll pay close attention this morning. In the passage that my brother Bob just read, and in chapter 27 as well, God addresses two very different responses to his corrective judgment. At the beginning of chapter 24, Jeremiah gives us some historical context to what he's about to tell us. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had already carried away into exile a very large contingent of the population of Judah and Jerusalem. The kings after Josiah consisted of Jehoahaz, his son, who reigned three months, Jehoiakim, who reigned 11 years, Jehoiakim's son, Jeconiah, who reigned three months. Jeconiah had ruled very briefly and very badly, and his reign ended when he and his mother, Nehushta, gathered up all of the the captains and the military leaders and the royal officials of Jerusalem, and they came outside the gates of the city to meet with Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was presently besieging the city and they wanted to try to figure out a way to end that. That was the last any of them saw of the inside of the city of Jerusalem because Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't all that keen on diplomacy. And so he just took them away into Babylon in exile the much smaller contingent of Judahites that remained in the city of Jerusalem (laughs) were the ones that Nebuchadnezzar considered the riffraff. They were either too poor or too sickly or too uneducated or too unskilled or in any case too unthreatening for Nebuchadnezzar to consider it worth consuming real estate and resources in Babylon itself. So he just left them in the city. He figured, they're in Jerusalem. I can manage them. And then he appointed Zedekiah, the uncle of Jeconiah, the third son of Josiah, to rule over them as a figurehead. Zedekiah had the auspicious assignment of being puppet king to the riffraff as Nebuchadnezzar saw it. He ruled for 11 years, and his 11-year reign ended with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. after an 18-month all-out siege by Nebuchadnezzar. It It was a heavily fortified city. It was quite a task for anyone to take. Zedekiah was the last of all of the kings of both Israel and Judah. In the line, he was the last king in the, over Judah in the line of David, the last one to rule on David's throne so far. There's another one coming. Most, by far, of the content of the book of Jeremiah was addressed to the Judahites during the 11-year reign of King Zedekiah, the last of the kings. And what we need to understand about those 11 years in Judah's history is that during Zedekiah's reign, there were two groups of Judahites. There were those who, before and during Jeconiah's short reign, were carried away into exile, and that was the mass of Judahites. That was most of them. And they were already in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's thumb. And then there was a second group, which was 
that small contingent of Jews that remained in the city of Jerusalem, the riffraff, as Nebuchadnezzar saw it. Both groups, guys, both groups have been commanded by God to stay where God put them and to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, to submit. And they were to submit to Nebuchadnezzar as God's instrument of judgment against his own people. Nebuchadnezzar was not acting alone in this, in the siege and the exile. He was God's instrument of corrective judgment. And if they would submit to God by submitting to Nebuchadnezzar, God promised that he would provide for them, the Jews in Babylon and the Jews in Jerusalem. And he would take care of them and he, he would protect them. And one day he would bring the exiled Jews back into the city. And ultimately, he would live in that city with his people forever. That was Jeremiah's repeated message. And it was especially pointed to the Jews living in Jerusalem because that's where Jeremiah was. He was in Jerusalem. In chapter 25, God hints that Judah's exile would end after 70 years. And in chapter 29, he comes right out and says it that the length of Jerusalem's exile in Babylon would be 70 years. That will be very significant later on in in a couple of future messages. In chapter 24, once once he told us the historical setting that he was writing this during the reign of Zedekiah after Jeconiah had been removed, Jeremiah records a conversation between him and God. And in that conversation, God God uh, shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs. And then he asks Jeremiah what he sees. And Jeremiah looks and he says, well, let's see, I see good figs and bad figs. And the good figs are very, very good. Maybe the best figs that Jeremiah ever saw. And the bad figs were awful. They couldn't be eaten because they were so rotten. And then God explained to Jeremiah what this picture that he was looking at meant. He explained that the good figs represented the Jews who had been carried away into captivity and were living in Babylon, and the bad figs represented the Jews who still remained in Jerusalem under Zedekiah's rule. But what made one group good figs and the other bad figs had nothing to do with their geography. It had to do with their response to God's corrective judgment. God had given a very similar assignment to both groups, but one group had by and large embraced that assignment. And the other group had resolutely rejected that assignment. And this is exceedingly instructive for us when God is subjecting us to his corrective judgment. Those who had already been taken into captivity were to submit to God there. God made it very clear by submitting to Nebuchadnezzar. There are four men in the book of Daniel that will be familiar to you who are excellent case studies of good figs. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You notice I had to look down because I forget their Hebrew names. We know them, we know them by their Babylonian names that Nebuchadnezzar gave to them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those men are good figs. They showed to Nebuchadnezzar and to each of the kings who succeeded him great honor. 
They submitted to everything that those kings required of them except when one of those kings required them to violate a commandment of Yahweh. And even even when a king determined to end their lives, and that happened to each of those of those four men, they still showed honor to the king that had resolved to kill them. When Darius showed up and Daniel is greeting him from within the lion's den, Daniel says, O king, live forever. That's a customary greeting of honor to the king. He, he just threw him in a pit of lions. Those four men did not order their lives around the fear of what ungodly earthly kings could do to them. What they did is they ordered their lives around the fear of and faith in the one true God. And that determined their words, their actions, their prayers. That determined everything for them because they saw Yahweh as the source of their well-being, not the king's. Not the circumstance. See, the exile didn't determine whether it was well with them or not well with them. God determined whether it was well with them or not well with them. In Jeremiah 27, verse 12, we see God's instructions to the ones who, uh, who ended up being the bad figs, the Jews who were still in Jerusalem. In 27 verse 12, God, uh, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah on God's behalf, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by famine and pestilence, as the Lord has spoken to that nation which will not serve the king of Babylon? Judah, by the way, was not alone. All of the surrounding nations had come under the rule of, of Babylon. And they were all commanded by God to sub- submit to him, to Nebuchadnezzar. But again, Zedekiah did not like being puppet king of the riffraff. He had more ambition than that. He wanted to be the, the victorious king of the city and the people of David. He wanted to be protector of the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people, the temple in Jerusalem. And so he surrounded himself with priests and prophets who happily endorsed that storyline. Zed, you're the man. Yahweh is never going to let Nebuchadnezzar take his city. And you're the one that he's going to use to protect it. The prophets and the priests and the people who said such things to Zedekiah were not misinformed. This is really important. They were not misinformed. They were flat out denying the very clear revelation that God had repeatedly, repeatedly given to them. And this is a good time for me to eat some crow. Earlier in this series, I, I made the error of saying that Jeremiah was pretty much alone. He was the only one speaking on God's behalf in Judah during his time. That's not true. I even cited the two other prophets mentioned in the book, Micah and Uriah, and I said they both came before Jeremiah. That was really sloppy, and I, and I ask for your forgiveness for that. Because that very text in Jeremiah 26 says that Uriah prophesied during the reign of King Jehoiakim. That was very definitely during Jeremiah's time. And it says that Uriah 
spoke words to the people that were very much like the words that Jeremiah was speaking. And you know what happened to Uriah? Jehoiakim went after him to kill him, and Uriah fled to Egypt. And Jehoiakim sent his soldiers to Egypt to do a snatch and grab and brought him back. And he, he sat Uriah in front of him, and then he pulled out his sword and he executed him personally. And he threw his body into a commoner's grave. And that very same passage makes it very clear that Jeremiah, the only reason Jeremiah survived at that point was because there was a faithful Judahite who protected him, who hid him from the king. So all of the essential things that Jeremiah was telling the Judahites had also been said by Uriah. And many of them had been said long before by faithful prophets like Isaiah. There are six verses in Second Chronicles 36 that go right to the heart of Zedekiah's grievous failure as the last mortal king on David's throne. Here are the first four of those verses. Second Chronicles 36, verses 11 to 14. Listen carefully. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh his God and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for Yahweh. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, God of Israel. Zedekiah wasn't alone. The next verse says, Furthermore, all of the officials and priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Now, please don't miss the fact that that passage in 2 Chronicles 36 equates Zedekiah's rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar with his rebellion against Yahweh, the God of Israel. And, and again, notice that he wasn't alone in that rebellion. The prophets, the priests, and the people were all with him. Now listen to the next two verses, verses 15 and 16 of that same passage. Yahweh the God of their fathers sent word to these Judahites again and again by his messengers, plural, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Don't miss any of that. God sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. If you read the Minor Prophets, you see repeated references to God's jealousy for the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where he was going to end up dwelling with his people. It'll be a new Jerusalem, but it's Jerusalem. But they, verse 16, they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people until there was no remedy. God was very patient, but now it was time for judgment. Verse 15 that we just read points out that their high-handed rebellion occurred even though Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. And the Hebrew phrase that's translated again and again literally means rising up early and sending. It's a beautiful image. 
rising up early. I sent my prophets to you, rising up early and sending them. I taught you, rising up early and teaching. It's God is likening Himself to a king who is who he, he has such such a powerful love for His people that when there's something urgent that they need to know, He loses sleep. He gets up early and He comes out and He tells them or He sends His messengers to tell them. And it says over and over that God did this. It says it once in Second Chronicles and eight times in Jeremiah. Eight times in Jeremiah. You know what that means, guys? It means that there was no guesswork here for Judah and her kings. There was no guesswork. All they had to do in order to be assured of God's protection and, to, and provision was to listen to His messengers and believe what He said. And that meant they had to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. It was pretty simple. Whether they had been taken into captivity or left behind in the city of Jerusalem. God very clearly and repeatedly told them to stay right where He put them, to embrace His God's corrective judgment that had put them under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, to trust God precisely by submitting to the foreign king that God had put an authority over them, rather than taking it upon themselves to cast off that authority and make their situation better. If they did as God clearly commanded them, He said it would be well with them. If they didn't, if they didn't, it wouldn't be a godless king that they had to worry about. It would be God. Why did God send the prophets to warn Judah of this coming judgment if they continued to disregard His words? Well, He tells us, quote, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. See, if God's purpose had simply been to avenge Himself against rebellious Judah, He didn't have to telegraph His intentions. He had no reason to keep sending His prophets to them over and over to tell them what He required of them and what would happen to them if they didn't do it. But His purpose for those repeated warnings was, by His own declaration, compassionate. Now, what does this mean for us How does this bear on us? I hope the wheels are turning already on that question. The way many Christians in this country are responding to our culture's increasingly hostile treatment of Christians might make an outsider wonder if we consider Zedekiah to be a better role model than Daniel or Jeremiah. After all, Zedekiah stood up to that tyrant Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah was a devout nationalist. He was a patriot. He was devoted to preserving the freedoms and the privileges that belonged to Judah by divine right. Aren't those the kinds of leaders that God wanted over His people? Jeremiah, on the other hand, was telling people the people of Judah, to willingly give up that divine right. He was telling the people of God to let themselves be governed by a godless king, a tyrant, and to do what that man required of them. To the ears of men like Zedekiah, Jeremiah was preaching cowardice, not courage, treason, not patriotism. And that's what Jeremiah was accused of. Treason against his own people. 
Surely God couldn't want leaders like that. Men like Daniel had gone willingly into captivity. They had rolled over and accepted servitude to Nebuchadnezzar. They were all going to die in Babylon away from God and away from His people. That's what Zedekiah thought. Men like Daniel had listened to the messengers of God like Jeremiah. And they had thrown away their right, listen, they had thrown away their right to self-determination, to freedom, their right to control their own well-being and their own destiny. That's downright un-American. If we had been living in exile during Daniel's time, which side would we be on? Zedekiah's or Daniel's? Zedekiah's or Jeremiah's? Have you ever considered that maybe we are living in such a time? Maybe instead of clinging to a divine right, a supposed divine right of cultural endorsement of our way of life, of cultural and institutional acceptability for Christians, a divine right that was never ours to begin with, maybe... Maybe we should embrace the fact that God never intended for His chosen race, His holy people, His royal priesthood to count on any kind of cultural acceptability at all. Maybe, as Peter said to the church a couple of thousand years ago, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And maybe that refiner's fire of God's purifying grace is supposed to mean that we will find less and less refuge in country and culture and we will find more and more refuge in Christ alone until He's the only refuge that we know. There's a lot of talk in the evangelical church these days about human flourishing. The Jews in Babylon certainly didn't flourish as the world measures flourishing. They lived in exile as a conquered slave nation within a godless nation ruled by tyrannical kings. Most people wouldn't call that flourishing. But beloved, those who submitted to that circumstance as an act of submission to God flourished wonderfully in their relationship and communion with the living God. Just read the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. Read about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and ask yourselves, did those men flourish in their relationship with God? Because see, that's where well-being is. A right and blessed response to God's corrective judgment is, is about simply listening to what God says, and believing Him. It's not guesswork. There's nothing about it that's guesswork. God says in His judgment of His people, uh, He says that His judgment of His people is compassionate. His warnings are compassionate. His judgment is compassionate. He says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for peace, for well-being, and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. But see, we got to get the definition of real well-being right or we're going to miss the whole thing. Real well-being and all that comes with it, including real provision, real security, real significance, is a radically, radically different thing than Zedekiah thought it was. 
This all boils down to letting God tell us what well-being is. Letting God tell us what's good for us. That takes humility. You know how we get humility? Humiliation. God knows exactly what He's doing when He humbles us. And He does it a whole lot because we need it a whole lot. And it's not once and done. It wasn't once and done for Judah. It's not once and done for us. And when we understand God's intention and God's, God's goal, God's marvelous and gracious purpose in those judgments, those, those corrections, we have a very different attitude toward them. The Bible tells us over and over from cover to cover that real well-being is not about circumstance. It's about relationship. Relationship with God together with the people of God. That's not two things. It's not horizontal and vertical. It's not two things. It's one union. Just read, read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. You'll see what I mean. It's not two unions. It's one. In Christ. The only role, beloved, the only role that our situation ever plays in our well-being is to drive us back to relationship and fellowship with God. In Jeremiah 24, verses 5-7, to God reveals the end point and purpose of His corrective judgment of the Jews whom He ripped out of the land of promise and sent into exile as slaves in a godless foreign land. Here's what He says. Jeremiah 24, I'm actually going to start at verse 6, "...for I will set my eyes upon them for good." And I will bring them again to this land and I will build them up and not overthrow them and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know Me. For I am Yahweh and they will be My people and I will be their God for they will return to Me with their whole heart. That's why God was doing what He was doing. God's purpose for this exile was not to get even with His people for rebelling against Him. It was not to be rid of them or to deprive them of well-being. It was to bring them into well-being. It was to redefine well-being in their eyes so that they would finally know what it really is. And that's what God is doing in every life, in the life of every redeemed child that He has, that he has purchased with the blood of Jesus. That's the purpose of God's corrective judgment. And it's the outcome of God's corrective judgment once He brings us to submit to it instead of kicking against it. And that's that's quite a journey for many of us. Having God as our Father means that correction is inevitable. And that's a good thing. Hebrews chapter 12, many of you know it. Verses 5-13, through You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
in my family, it was mostly my mom that did the disciplining. And you know what? There was a time when I thought she spanked us every day just in case. (laughs) And then there was a time when I grew up and I went to my mom and I thanked her. And I said, Mom, I thank you for every single one of those spankings. I know it's becoming illegal now, but I praise God for it. And she was just an imperfect parent. God is a perfect father, a perfect loving father. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But listen, but if you are without discipline, <laughs> then you got a problem. Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We're always looking for some kind of hallmark of the fact that we belong to God. Beloved, the struggle that you have every day of your life, the discipline that God brings into your life as His child all the time, is your birthmark and your birthright. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for good. They do what seems best, but God knows what's best. He knows what's good. And His discipline, guys, is always, always gracious toward His children. And then He says that we may share His holiness. He says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. (laughs) Amen to that. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And that's commissioning each of us toward each other in the body of Christ to hold one another to stand firm in the midst of this discipline and to see it as good. To uphold one another when it's really hard. The writer of Hebrews says that God's painful, sorrowful, gracious, fatherly discipline is the birthmark and birthright of every child of God. It's the birthmark because it that discipline puts on display whose child you are. And it's the birthright because it assures you of God's faithful work to conform you to Jesus Christ, to make you share His holiness and to cause you to lay hold of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you want those things? There's only one way to have them. And that's the discipline of our perfect Heavenly Father. Proverbs says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod will drive it far from him. We're children. We are God's children. We start out as fools and the only way we become wise is God's discipline. And you you know what that means. It means it's a treasure, not a curse. Is that the way you think of the hardship that God either engineers or allows in your life that it's a treasure and not a curse? That's what it is. That's what God declares it to be. Will you listen to Him and believe Him? Or will you replace what He says about His own fatherly discipline with something that's not true? And believe that. Those are the two kinds of responses to the corrective judgment of God. 
And God will certainly finish this gracious construction project that he's in the midst of in the mind and heart and body of every child of his on our glorification day when these unredeemed bodies get redeemed and sin is put forever away from us, we'll be like Christ because we'll see Him as He truly is. The new man, which Paul says, in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, will be all that remains of Keith Johnson and Ken Hillard and Don Robertson. And every, every child of God in this room and every child of God on earth, all that remains will be Christ in us, the hope of glory. It amazes me sometimes how we as Christians agonize over trying to figure out why God is making things so hard on us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, if I just knew why God was letting this happen, it would be easier to take. First, let me say, most of the time, God isn't letting it happen. He's making it happen. What they're saying, in effect, is what good is God's corrective discipline if I don't know what He's correcting? I have good news for you, beloved. It's not rocket science. All we have to do is look really hard at Christ and then glance at ourselves, and we'll know what God's correcting. God is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure He is at work in us to conform us to Christ. He's at work in us to make us share Christ's holiness and to cause us to lay hold of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So unless all of that is already yours in full measure, you know what God is working to correct. I am not saying that God never works to correct specific sins in the hearts and lives of His children. He absolutely does do that. But King David told us whose responsibility that is in the last two verses of Psalm 139. He said, Lord, You seek Me and know My heart. Know Me. Try Me and know My anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in Me. And You lead Me in the way everlasting. See, He took that burden and He put it on God. Instead of introspection, He turned it into theospection. And the more we do that, the more certainly we will be on the same track as God when He's at work to discipline us and to correct things in our lives. Don't spend a lot of time looking at yourself. Spend a whole lot of time looking at Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We act sometimes like He's the author and we're the finisher. And beloved, when it feels like God has put us into a furnace of affliction, we have the whole Bible to tell us why. It's to bring us back to Him over and over and over. God's promise and God's delight in correcting His people is to make us find all our delight and all our well-being in Him alone. And in order to do that, He has to break us of our delight in everything other than Him. And for, for me, that's, that's, a, that's a lot that has to be overcome. And I'm so very thankful that that God is relentlessly doing that good work that I don't deserve. He has to break us of our delight in everything other than Him. And beloved, if that doesn't explain a whole lot 
of the struggles in your life, then you're just not listening to what God has to say. If we, if we take this grid that God has given us to interpret life and to interpret the things that, that are going on with us, and we, we say, no, I don't think that does it. Let me, let me put something else in here that will explain it better. We're going to miss what God's doing. And we're not going to be joyful. We're going to be ungrateful instead of grateful. We're going to think we're cursed when God has lavished His gracious blessing upon us in Christ. And that blessing includes loving, fatherly discipline every single day. We're going to miss it. Because we're believing ourselves instead of shutting up and sitting down at the feet of Jesus and listening to Him. And letting Him tell us what's good for us. And letting Him tell us what His purposes are in the furnace of affliction in which we find ourselves daily. When we do listen, when we let His Word tell us what's good for us and what He's at work doing in us, the riches of relationship and fellowship with Him together with His people become the only currency that we consider wealth. And that wealth is untouchable. The unfathomable riches of Christ that God lavishes on every one of His redeemed children and upon the household of His children, those riches cannot be touched by anything else that happens to us in this life, no matter what it is, no matter how bad it looks. God's nearnesses are good. As my brother Kerry said to me earlier this week, I love this, I wrote it down immediately. He said, it's better to follow Him as a slave in a land of oppression than to be a free man in a wealthy land. Now some of you might be thinking, okay God, I'm good with all that, just please don't give me Jeremiah's job. (laughs) Twice God sent Jeremiah on a 600 mile walking trip on foot, and this was before Nike's, so he could end up with a rotted waistband to show to the Judahites to illustrate a message. He was accused of being a false prophet by nearly all of the respected priests and prophets in Judah. He was accused of despising his own people. He was accused of being a traitor against his own people by the the most powerful people in Jerusalem because he told them to submit to a godless king. He was repeatedly arrested. He was beaten. He was put on public display in humiliation in stocks outside the temple compound. He was thrown into a cistern with no water, just mud. And when the nation suffered judgment under the hand of God, he suffered right along with them. He often struggled with feelings of being abandoned by God and misled by God, but he always came back to testify of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And you know what he never, never stopped doing? He never stopped saying what God said. Anyone here want that assignment? Beloved, we all should. Because true well-being has nothing to do with self-determination, material prosperity, comfort, or freedom from physical suffering. True well-being is entirely about relationship and fellowship with God together with His redeemed people. And the place in which our loving Heavenly Father brings us into our most powerful and pervasive encounters with Him so that we truly come to behold Him and know Him and trust Him, and submit to Him, that place is the refiner's furnace of His loving, fatherly discipline. That's where most of the work happens.
That gracious furnace of affliction doesn't serve only to break us of our affection for things that can't satisfy. Paul says it also makes us know our Lord Jesus more fully than we could ever know Him without it. I'll close with these familiar words of the Apostle Paul, whose life looked a lot like Jeremiah's. Paul was delighted with God's with God's gracious purposes for all that he experienced in his life. And he wrote in Philippians 3, Whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. But there's one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Dear Father, We ask You to teach us again and again and again until we really hear You. And then teach us after that. Teach us until our circumstance matters only so far as it drives us straight back to You. Teach us to find all that is good in our blessed union with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together with all the redeemed of the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.